Hi, and welcome to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. I am your host, Josh Campson, not fired yet. Today we're interviewing Noah Marlier. Noah is the prothonotary of Montgomery County, which is a, what I thought, super boring job, but it sounds like he enjoys it. So they are in charge of filing all civil paperwork. Uh, Noah, though, has an interesting background, started as a teacher, and now he's here. So Noah and I talk about that background. We talk about uh, when he was the leanest in his life and how long it takes to bike about 30 to 50 miles uh, a day in Africa. And we talk about how the pandemic has affected him and how it's affected his office and how his office is working to make the courts more accessible to everyone in the area, anyone that has to deal with the Montgomery County courts. But I think this episode is good for anyone, uh, even if you don't live in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, because we do talk about access to justice and we do talk about improvements that are coming in the practice of law as a result of the pandemic and just as a result uh, of more inclusive practices. So take a listen. As always, rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps out the show. I'm Josh Campson, and thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy. With us today, Noah Marlier, the prothonotary of Montgomery County, PA, and an attorney at Hamburg Rubin. Noah, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Josh. It's a pleasure. So you're an attorney and an elected official. Uh, how's that? <laughs> it's it's good. Listen, I, I've been very clear, you know, while I was running, and I, I, I say this as often as I can. Um, I am I am the prothonotary. I was elected to to be the full-time prothonotary, and I treat the position as such. Um, I do do some legal work on the side, and I'm I'm very fortunate to be at a very well-respected uh, law firm, Hamburg Rubin. Uh, it's been around Montgomery County for, for four decades now. And uh, it was important for me to be at a place, because I am a, a public servant and elected official, uh, to be at a firm that's well-respected within the legal community, well-respected within the county generally. Um, so I'm very proud of that. But my, my legal work truly is kind of a side job. Um, and I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit. So you wanted to be at a respected firm. Is that why you never agreed to partner up? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> I gave it some thought, Josh. <laughs> uh, and in the area of law you practice is not the area of law I practice. But so let's talk a little bit about your legal career just for a second, if we could, because sure. you do mostly municipal work, right? I do. So for the last um, seven years now, I, I, I've been a municipal attorney. Uh, I've been so, so proud to uh, represent at different times Abington Township, um, uh, uh, Plymouth Township, uh, some school boards in Montgomery County, uh, some zoning hearing boards. Currently, I am, I am the solicitor to the Jenkintown Zoning Hearing Board, having grown up in Jenkintown. Um, that is truly an honor. Um, the solicitor to the Bridgeport Zoning Hearing Board, the Upper Marion uh, uh, Transportation Authority and General Authority and uh, the West Norwich and Civil Service Commission. So those are smaller clients, smaller municipal clients, um, and, that, and that's, that's kind of my wheelhouse. And, and I can do those meetings at night, um, you know, after I've done my work for the Pathonotary's office. And I'm just really proud to, to represent municipalities because I feel like it's kind of an extension of, of my public service. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm being paid as, as solicitor, so it's not, a, it's not like my Peace Corps service when I was being paid $100 a month. Um, but I still think it's it's public service, and I think it's um, I think it's important work, and I think it's helping the communities. But how did you land in municipal law? In other words, you know, were you in law school thinking, you know, what I really want to do is go to meetings at seven thirty every weeknight? 
or did you stumble into it? You know, what was the path to get into municipal law? Yeah, so uh, what I have always wanted to do was run for office and be a public servant. So I've always wanted every little boy's dream be the prothonotary, right? Um, exactly. You know, I, I, I did not actually think I would be prothonotary when I was uh, uh, in high school, but I did want to run. For, I knew I wanted to run uh, and represent people. Um, and so, you know, politics was always something that, that I aspired to. I think it's a noble cause. I know that right now politics uh, for a lot of people is a little bit of a dirty word, but I, I don't think so at all. I think it's one of the noblest things uh, one can aspire to do because it's, it's about service. When done right, it's about serving people, helping people, uh, making decisions that are important decisions. And I, I feel like I make those every day, um, and those decisions have real impact. Um, so, through my, I thought going into the law would be a great way, a uh, great path to that. And so the kind of law that I've done, I've really tried to align with, with my ideals of service. So I was a district attorney for a few years here in Montgomery County. Uh, and, and every day I was in court, uh, with all due respect to defense attorneys, Josh. Um, mm -hmm. Go I, on. Here we I, go. <laughs> I, oh, how can you represent those people? Why do you no, wear a no, bow tie? No, no, no. <laughs> well, the bow tie is one thing. Um, no, I, uh, I, I, I respect what public defenders do. Uh, obviously, I respect judges. But I believe that DAs have a very special kind of power. You know, DAs, they're the ones who make the offers, those initial offers. That doesn't mean that's what is going to end up happening in the end. But I think you and I both know the power of uh, a prosecutor and a prosecutor who is fair and even-handed and respects the law and respects the facts that are before that prosecutor versus a prosecutor that is, is hard-charging just to be hard-charging and hard-charging to rack up the numbers and hard-charging to, to, uh, to get a bunch of trials. Uh, that was never the kind of district attorney I was. I really felt like I was going in there uh, representing the people of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and that included the defendant in a lot of ways. That included the victims. That included doing the right thing for that case and the right thing by that defendant. That didn't mean by any stretch I was advocating for that defendant, obviously, not my role. But you have to keep justice in mind at all times. And so I think the district attorney's uh, position is extremely powerful. And I think it's extremely important. So I love being a DA. And I transitioned into municipal law um, with the same kind of thought that to me representing townships in my home county of Montgomery and representing school districts and zoning hearing boards and sewer authorities, you're doing work that impacts people directly. The decisions you make, the guidance you give to uh, a zoning hearing board regarding a, a large development, let's say in a township, or to an authority regarding you know, important sewer work that's going to impact the rates of a, of a borough or a township, these, these have real impacts. I think it's really important, and I was proud of that work, and I am proud of that. Now, when you left the district attorney's office, did you immediately get into municipal law? In other words, you know, this was something I thought about because I have friends that work in municipalities, and I thought, oh, maybe I should get into municipal law for the reasons you've outlined. So I went to a municipal law symposium 10 years ago or 8 years ago uh, and left halfway through because it was not my cup of tea as someone that you know, as a, a criminal defense litigator. So how did you make that transition? What was really neat was my focus in municipal law has been the litigation side. So I've represented 
Uh, I, 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 when, you know, in my work as, as a municipal attorney, I've been in court a lot um, because I represented townships when they got sued or when they sued. Uh, I represent school districts when they got sued or, or, or were suing. And, and that happens. And, and you, know, you look at townships, uh, there's a lot of code enforcement work. And, and I love that kind of work. I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a, an individual uh, in a township uh, that I represented a few years ago that was a hoarder. And the township was looking at this property. It was dilapidated. It, it was it falling into disrepair, in disrepair. It was an extreme danger to the property owner as well as the neighbors. And when they went into the property, uh, they looked around, they, they, they went in with the owner's consent. Uh, it, like I said, it was a hoarding situation. It was very dangerous, but they also found out that he was military, he was a vet. And so I worked with the township to get him help. And I said, hey, let's talk to the county about um, County Veterans Affairs Office, uh, and I, I worked with the, the department head at the time, uh, who's, who's fantastic, um, to get this property owner help. And we realized, piecing together his social security number, piecing together his information, which he was a little reluctant to give, um, but, but finding that information and, and figuring that out and doing a little detective work, we were able to realize that he had a lot of benefits, like full benefits, and he could get some health care and he could get housing. And so we ended up having to take some really drastic measures regarding the house because it was falling down. Um, but those measures helped the neighborhood. And, but that was the work I did kind of on behalf of the township, but also on behalf of the township because he was a resident and the township cared about that resident. We got the property owner help. And so I, I just feel like that's a good example of, of the kind of work that I've done that I continue to do. And, and I really, um, it brings me a lot of joy and pride to be able to do that. And it sounds like that's something you've been into since the beginning. You had mentioned you were in the Peace Corps. You served in Africa, right? I did. I actually met my uh, beautiful wife, Lindsay, in, in Malawi, Africa. and uh, Also in the I, Peace Corps, or was she living in Africa? No, she was in the Peace Corps as well. I, I, I was there for a full year, um, and she came into the group after me. So I was there as a teacher trainer. I was the third teacher trainer ever to go over to Malawi. The idea being that teaching is important, but teaching isn't quite as sustainable as being a teacher trainer. If I train, go to Malawi, train uh, teachers at five different schools, which is what I did. I biked around um, you know, miles sometimes, 20, 25 miles to a school and I would meet with teachers, figure out their issues, their challenges, really talk to them many, many times before we would start to, uh, holding training sessions. And uh, that training was very sustainable because now I've trained those teachers who will then teach thousands of students. Um, at least that was the hope. Um, but I, I love the Peace Corps, it was a great experience. Uh, I was a teacher prior to that in public schools. I was a uh, US history teacher. Um, and then I went into the Peace Corps and then I taught world history when I came home. Uh, just for a little bit to bridge the gap before law school. Let's break that down for a second. So you started as a public school teacher where? So I uh, went to college at James Madison down in Virginia. And so when I got, I, I went there to be a teacher. Uh, again, kind of in line with that public service. My mom was, was in education, so was my dad. Um, and, and I just thought it was you know, such a good way to start my career. Um, and I think at, at a time, I thought maybe I would be a teacher um, for my career. 
And so I was uh, coming out of James Madison, and it was just so much easier at that point to get a job. Not easy, but, but easier to get a public school teaching job uh, in Virginia versus Pennsylvania coming home uh, to Montgomery County. Um, so I taught outside Richmond, Virginia, which was interesting, teaching the Civil War to uh, Southern kids. Uh, and uh, I taught very gifted students. A lot of my students were very gifted, um, part of a math science gifted program, which came with challenges because they were gifted in math and science, but not necessarily US history. Um, but they, they were very intelligent, though. So um, it, was, it was an experience and, and a great experience. Um, and then when I went to the Peace Corps, like I said, I was a teacher trainer, but I also taught social studies. So when you were a teacher, you're teaching the Civil War in the South. Did they have limitations on what you could teach? Were you thinking, hey, this is a little weird, uh, et cetera? Or was it just pretty straightforward? You were new out of school. Sounds good. They gave you the curriculum and move forward. So I never had explicitly any dictates from Chesterfield County Public Schools that I could or could not teach certain things. But I will tell you, just uh, the experience was pretty incredible. I, I'll never forget uh, beginning the lesson and talking about how we were going to uh, talk about the Civil War for the next couple weeks. And, and this boy raised his hand and said, Mr. Marlier, don't you mean the War of uh, Northern Aggression? And I said, uh, okay, we could talk about that. Um, so that was interesting, uh, but yeah, the, the real, yeah, the real, the real uh, restrictions came from the federal government. So, the 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 testing that was done, um, the standardized testing was really limited. So my second year of teaching, I taught AP, which was much uh, was much much more of a liberating kind of experience because I was teaching to a different kind of test that wasn't quite as rote. Um, wasn't quite as standard, so I could kind of expand a little bit. But still, I think teachers are under a lot of a lot of pressure to conform to these tests. I, I think it's a real shame, uh, and it definitely uh, serves as uh, to to create some challenges. I think. So you started teaching. You went to Africa, taught there for a little while, came back, and then decided, you know what, this teaching isn't for me. I'd rather be a lawyer. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> I think a lot of people would look at me a little sideways, you know, like, you know, I went from teaching like the noblest of professions and I became a lawyer, you know, and now I'm in politics. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's, an, it's an interesting, uh, maybe, maybe not the, the route that a lot of people go, but I think, I think it, it really is, um, for me, uh, pretty well explained with, with my, my uh, emphasis on, on, on serv service and, and helping people. And I think with all three of those kinds of careers, um, I had the same mentality, which was, I'm, I'm here to help, I'm here to serve. Um, and and I loved I love teaching, and I respect teachers immensely, especially right now. Um, I just, I could not even fathom uh, teaching the way that teachers are doing right now during the pandemic. Um, it must be, I, I'm sure it's very challenging. But, but when I was teaching, I just saw it as such an important role. I was teaching juniors. Uh, like I said, a lot of them were very gifted. And, and so what they needed was somebody who, who, yes, taught them U.S. history, but also taught them how to learn, you know, because some of them were so, so intelligent that it just came to them so naturally. So to push them to really uh, move past the multiple choice, move past the memorizing of dates and facts and figures, and, and really look at history as like a living, breathing thing that, that instructs us now and instructs us moving forward, I think those were, you know, important uh, 
important emphasis that I put on, on, on the teaching. So you become a lawyer, you know you want to go into public service, and eventually you decide, I'm going to run to be the prothonotary. For those of you, for those of the listeners who aren't lawyers, uh, who don't know, what is a prothonotary? And how long did it take you after law school to remember how to spell it? Sure. How to spell it and how to say it. And then when I was on the campaign trail, uh, uh, trying to teach people <laughs> how to pronounce it, how to say it, and how to pronounce my last name, Marlier. Um, you know, all challenges. But the prothonotary is a, is a position that's not in every state. It's not in every, um, um, you know, jurisdiction by any means. But basically, it's a clerk of the courts, which, of course, here in Montgomery County for the lawyers um, and criminal defense attorneys specifically, um, you don't want to get confused with the clerk of courts, uh, who's Lori Shriver. Uh, and, and that office specifically deals with the filings for criminal matters. My office, the prothonotary's office, spelled prothonotary, and I have to say that every time I spell it. In my head, I say prothonotary. Um, my office, the prothonotary's office, is where you file civil legal papers. And it's where those, those papers get archived, uh, docketed and archived. So, you know, I think it's a really important office, and I say this, and I say this a lot because I think people need to either know this or be reminded of this. In a lot of ways, my office is the first step into the court system. And I say that not to say that, that everything that comes after that isn't important. It's unbelievably important. And there's going to be hearings in front of judges. And um, you know, the court administration does an amazing job of scheduling and, 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 and working out all those issues for the courts. Um, but when someone comes in to file their divorce papers, when someone comes in because they're being abused in their home, when someone needs help because they're being evicted and they want to appeal that eviction. We're talking about some of the most um, sensitive and, and maybe frightening times in somebody's whole life. And the first interaction with the court system is oftentimes with my office because they're filing the legal papers to initiate that, that um, legal process. And so I think it's really important for uh, my office to understand that. Uh, I have about 30 employees. My staff uh, is, is really, really good. And they try so hard. They work so hard. And one of the things I've emphasized is, is just to, to remember the importance of our role. So we're holding sensitivity trainings. I'm in my office. I was just talking to the Mazzoni Center yesterday. We're going to hold a, a sensitivity training to, to better understand how to assist people that maybe don't look like my clerks, don't have the background of my clerks, don't... Um, you know, have the same lifestyle as a lot of my clerks. And, and that's fine. You know, we want to be able to assist people, all people in Montgomery County, and do so in a respectful way, um, in a fair way. And so that's really important to me. Yeah. Now, you know, as you mentioned, a prothonotary is not in every county. Some counties just have a prothonotary or just have the clerk of courts, kind of one filing office. Have you ever thought, do we need these two offices? Maybe you start putting a desk in the clerk of court's office just to see, you know, a little encroaching, a little shot across the bow. Has that ever happened? No shots across the bow on Lori Schreiber. No way. No. Okay. I, I think. Uh, Has she ever shown up in your office thinking <laughs> I could do some different wallpaper in here? Uh, you know, measure the curtains. Yeah. No. I. One of the big things for me is uh, collaboration with other county offices. So. Uh, I'll give you an example. With the notaries, uh, with a notary, when they're uh, becoming a notary, uh, 
they have to file their signature in my office, but they, they get sworn in and file, file papers over in the recorder of deeds. And I have a very good relationship, I believe, with these other department heads. You know, Gene Sorg and I have worked together to make that process more streamlined. Um, and I think that's really important. Uh, something for, for most of the listeners on this podcast, for attorneys to know, is that uh, the sheriff and I have been working together um, to create a, a, a much more streamlined service system where an attorney or, or anyone would file a legal paper and then electronically be able to, to uh, request service as well. And I think that's going to be really, really beneficial. And there'll be an announcement about that just in the coming weeks um, for all the, the, the folks who would need that, that service, especially Back up, attorneys. pause. So you're yeah. saying I'm going to be able to, in the e-filing system, pop it right over to the sheriff. They'll take it and serve it? Correct. Nice. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's you know, the kind of collaboration, and I, I tip my hat to the sheriff on this because he initiated this before I came into office. But of course, I picked that up and, and think it's a great idea. I mean, to me, it's anything that can make life easier on my, I, you know, and I say customers because I think, you know, the people coming into my office and utilizing the resources that my office can, can provide are, are customers. And, and the customer service has to be really good. Um, a lot of those customers are attorneys, but a lot are pro se uh, litigants. But I'll tell you, when I came into the prothonotary's office, my mentality is every single day I'm in this office, I try to think about ways to make the filing system better every day. So we are, for the first time in years, looking at our policies and procedures and that manual. And there is a manual, but again, it hasn't been updated in years. And we couldn't just overhaul the manual all at once. It's too much. You can imagine all the different filings, uh, how long that's going to take. But also, we couldn't wait to start updating it. So we now have it electronically. We're updating it every single week. My supervisors and I, we're going to meet today. Every Thursday, we meet. We discuss those policies and procedures, maybe three or four a week. We update them, and the policies and procedures are updated almost like in real time. And we have the date that they're updated. Um, and because it's electronic, we could just sit there you know, and update uh, kind of as we go along. Yeah. Um, so you came in in January of 2020, and it, it sounds like you've been doing a lot, obviously, since you came in. What, what would you say, pandemic aside, so your first two months, uh, what was the thing that surprised you the most when you came in? And you know, what, were those, what did those first couple of normal months look like when you first started? feels like 10 years ago, uh, yeah. but yeah, it was a year ago. So I think that one of my points of emphasis, and this goes along with the updating of the policies and procedures, for the attorneys who are filing, but also for my clerks who are doing the filing, there needs to be consistency. If there's one thing I think lawyers want, they want to know what the rules are. They don't want to be guessing. So what I've really tried to institute uh, in those first two months, but beyond, is consistency in my office. I don't think one lawyer should be getting an answer regarding a filing, and that same kind of filing, uh, another clerk gives a different answer. So that that goes back to the policies and procedures. That goes back to my clerks not giving legal advice. So I'm working with the Bar Association, and I really want to thank Denise Vicario. She is a just amazing. Um, and she's working with us to, to, to try to get a training or try to you know get us a, um, uh, a couple uh, resources to, to, to train my office on what is legal advice 
What isn't legal advice? Where is that line? And I think there is a gray area that gets a little tricky, but there's certainly things that my office should not be doing. We are a non-discretionary ministerial office. All right, we're back. Um, before the break, Noah, you have been talking about the office and working with both the office and the Bar Association to you know, really make the office a little bit smoother for attorneys, although I know there's some things that you've been working on uh, making changes with to make the office smoother for not just lawyers, but the public. And what's been going on there? Sure. So so first off, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud uh, to, to be the first attorney in the office in years. Uh, so, uh, my predecessors were not attorneys and I think that that gives me, uh, a unique perspective. I understand what the issues are, um, with, with lawyers and with law firms and paralegals regarding filing in my office. Um, and, and I think that I'm very attuned to those issues and wanting to learn about the issues I don't know about. Uh, so one of the things I've really focused on in this first year is making sure that, uh, I was listening to attorneys listening to to what their issues are and how filings can be uh, done just a little bit easier uh, to make their lives a little bit easier. So I've had a number of land, uh, uh, forums with law firms, uh, some of the bigger law firms, so I can kind of cover a, a lot of attorneys and paralegals at one time. Uh, but I've also worked with the Bar Association to have a, a forum for the uh, small firm uh, solo practitioner committee, uh, which was really well attended where uh, myself and, and one of my supervisors um, fielded questions, kind of common issues uh, that, that lawyers have regarding filing. And what were the I top issues, would, would you say, that people complained about? Or raised, think, uh, what it raised concerns about, I should say. Sure. It, it, regard, you know, there were some questions about you know, just kind of procedures on, on uh, docketing or filing uh, matters with with exhibits and and when those exhibits need to be uploaded and and things like that kind of some of the nitty gritty filing questions and, um, and and it was great because we were able because I brought one of my supervisors along who actually does that filing on the day to day basis she was actually in charge of e filing um, she was able to answer those questions and and a lot of the questions had to do with e filing uh, which has become much more prevalent obviously over this last year with the pandemic. Um, and, and obviously my office was able to e-file prior to, to, to me coming on board as prothonotary. But I think if we can make that process smoother um, for attorneys, uh, I think it, you know, that's a good thing. So we held these forums and, and I think it was good just to be able to communicate and talk about the issues because I can't know what uh, all the issues are unless I'm actually communicating with, with who my customers, customers are and, and most of my customers are attorneys. And how about some of the stuff that's more public facing, you know, the PFAs and the name changes and things of that nature. Have you made any changes in those areas? Yeah. So, so to me, the number one priority is, is making my office run, be more effective and more efficient for the customers. Right. And so we've really focused on, on the policies and procedures within the office and, and updating those. And I think I was talking about that before the break. Um, and, and just making the processes uh, processes more uh, just a little bit smoother for for the customer. But I also uh, promised as prothonotary that I would really focus on some issues that I think are important to to the residents of Montgomery County. So 
number one, I've continued to focus on uh, uh, domestic violence and, and my office is where people would go for protection from abuse. And we handle anywhere from 20 to 40, uh, sometimes even more uh, applications for PFAs a week. And, and this is a major, major issue. And I think it's, it's also a problem that, that a lot of people don't know to come to my office to file for a PFA. So when you look at those numbers, it's kind of shocking how many people are trying to get a PFA. I think it, it's equally as shocking that a lot of people don't know that that's a resource. And so I've been out there uh, just really making sure that, that my office, that people know that my office is that resource and can come uh, to my office as, as kind of the start to get some protection. Obviously, we're not the courts. We don't, we don't um, issue the orders. We don't hold the hearings, okay? We're a ministerial, there's a ministerial office and we, we simply take the application for the PFA. But it's really important because we're kind of the gatekeeper uh, for those PFAs and we're the, we're the first step uh, where people would go, first step people would take to, to get some protection. And so my uh, PFA unit, uh, I'm just so proud of, the, of my staff and, and how they treat those folks that are in a really vulnerable position. So PFAs, we've been taking a lot of steps uh, to make the process smoother and, 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 and better for uh, those applicants. And then landlord-tenant uh, issues have been a, a huge priority for me, especially during the pandemic over this last year. I, I think we're facing an eviction crisis. Um, and unfortunately, uh, folks who needed to appeal a landlord-tenant matter, uh, they're not able to come to the courthouse right now because of the safety protocols that are in place. And I, I totally understand that and, and, and how important it is to keep people out of the courthouse right now. Uh, but we fought very hard uh, to, to get an office in one Montgomery Plaza that would specifically serve people that are appealing landlord-tenant matters from a district judge. And, and is that a thing now? It is a thing. So there was a moratorium, state moratorium that was pretty rigid through August of 2020, and then a federal moratorium that's still in place, but there's a lot of loopholes in that federal moratorium. So we are seeing landlord-tenant matters work their way through the district courts and then they get appealed uh, to the Court of Common Pleas via my office. And if we didn't have that, that office in one Montgomery Plaza, the, these people really couldn't bring those appeals because a lot of times uh, it has to be done in person. And uh, I'm very proud of the fact that there's been about five to 10, five to, to 12 um, matters coming through uh, that special landlord-tenant office in one Montgomery Plaza across from the courthouse uh, a week. And, and again, those people would be really out of luck. And, and I think it's a major issue. I think we're facing an eviction crisis. And down the line, I think we're facing a homelessness crisis when all that back rent hits these people all at once. It's going to be a major problem. Not to mention a mortgage foreclosure crisis. You know, as someone that's a landlord, uh, nobody's paying the rent. Nobody can pay the mortgage. Not a lot of mortgage relief available. You know, it's kind of a domino situation. That's exactly right. I think, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, I, I really worry about those runners that are going to be out um, and evicted and homeless. But I also worry about the, the homeowner. Uh, the homeowner who, there's a lot of landlords that own one property. They need to pay that mortgage. And if they're not getting that rent, that's a major problem. So the county I know is working on that. They've got a lot of programs. They're using a lot of the CARES Act funding um, and that to, to help this issue. And the money's not going to the renters. That would be silly to go to the renters and then 
pay the landlords, why would you do, why would you create that step? It's going straight to the landlords. Um, and that's a reprieve for the landlords that helps them, but it also helps the renters, obviously, uh, to get that rent paid uh, directly through CARES Act funding. Yeah, of course. Uh, and so, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, and the third third issue that I'm really focusing on, Josh, is uh, is name changes. I think it's, it's very challenging to get your name changed. Uh, people oftentimes are very confused by the process and the application, the petition does come through my office. So I think uh, it's something that's right in my wheelhouse. Uh, obviously, again, we're, I'm not the courts, I'm not a judge, but we can make the process a little clearer to people, especially trans folks uh, you know, in our community who are changing their name. They face a lot of uh, uh, threats. Uh, uh, disproportionately trans, trans people face more threats, more violence, more intimidation because of who they are. Um, and when they're changing their name, oftentimes they have to make that that public uh, in in a publication in the county uh, unless they get a, a waiver from the court. And so we've put those procedures uh, on my website, made it very clear that we are accepting and, and we do not discriminate in any way, shape, or form in my office. And, and we hope that trans folks in, in Montgomery County feel that they can come to my office and petition for their name change if that's what they want to do. And so we've been really uh, working with the LGBTQ community uh, to make sure that that uh, we are sensitive to that issue. Good. No, it's important. Uh, so we had talked about your office. We had talked about you know you being in the Peace Corps and as a teacher and kind of your transition from you know that normal career transition from teacher to lawyer to prothonotary. Uh, now I have some lighter questions for you. Okay. Uh, that I've been asking a lot of guests. The first one is the most important, which is what's your position on the Oxford comma? <laughs> well, I am a very, very, it's funny you ask this. I am, I am very passionate about this. I am big on the Oxford comma. Me too. I started uh, a whole podcast just to ask people about it. Yeah, I think there's some cases on this that are, that are fairly significant uh, regarding a lot of large sums of money, uh, you know, whether you, 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 the Oxford comma was used or not and how to interpret a certain language based on that. So, no, I, I use the Oxford comma. I'm big on it. Not a lot of uh, uh, vestiges from from our our British brother, you know, uh, the, from our time in the colonial exactly the from our colonial times exactly. But I I think the uh, Oxford comma might be one of them. So you you mentioned that when you were over in Africa, you were biking 10, 15, you know, miles a day. I know you in person, you're a slim guy. Is that your secret? Are you still biking 10 to 15 miles a day? Have you, you know, been doing that during quarantine? You know, what's what's the trick over there? I have not, Josh. And and, and the COVID-19 is is real, uh, by the way, the, the, the putting on the pounds. Uh, during is the, that why the we're not pandemic. doing video? I mean, that's, that's why exactly I'm not doing right. video. I, I, I'm, I I'm thinking I have to qualify for the vaccine now. So, you know, that's not good. <laughs> I, I, I will do a podcast. I wasn't going to do a video. Um, no, I listen, I, I haven't biked the way I biked in the Peace Corps uh, ever. That was the most, uh, that was the fittest I ever was. And I was biking 50 miles a day at times um, in the Peace Corps. And uh, I was in I was in good shape, man. But uh, it gets harder, as, as you know, it gets harder as you get older. But uh, oh, yeah, it's an important thing. So no Peloton in your basement? No Peloton. Maybe that will be the uh, present this Christmas. Yeah, maybe. So uh, speaking of purchases, during lockdown, was there a, a silly purchase or a thing that you look back and you thought, why did I buy that or why did I do that during you know the original lockdown period? 
No, not a lot of not a lot of crazy purchases during the pandemic. I will say we my boys and I, we've bought a lot of puzzles. We've done a lot of puzzles during the the lockdown. So Avengers puzzles and Star Wars puzzles have been a big thing. Regular puzzles, in other words, just like, you know, put them together, 100 pieces, 500 pieces, whatever. Yeah, my boys are doing the thousand pieces. They're 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 amazing. Uh, I have a nine year old and a seven year old, I think, as I said, and uh, and they they love puzzles, especially if they can get into the uh, the comic book characters. They're uh, they're big on that. So, did you guys all watch Wandavision together, or is that a little bit too adult for them? A little too adult, uh, but Wandavision, a little bit of a tearjerker there at the end. Won't 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 uh. We'll leave it spoiler-free. No, no spoilers, yes. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm big on, on WandaVision and the Avengers movies and anything we can aspire to right now. I think we all need a little hope in this world and a little uh, something to look up to. So I agree. I agree. Uh, what is something you hate but you wish you loved? <laughs> something I hate and I wish I loved. I, I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not a big like opera fan or ballet but I wish I was a little more cultured, you know, like I can't really be a Renaissance man when I'm watching Jeopardy and, you know, whole categories go by and I'm just at a loss. So you don't even know what they are. Yeah. I'm like, well, who, who are these people? You know, they, they bring up Beethoven and Mozart and I'm, I'm done. Uh, so I, I wish I was a little more cultured that way, Josh. Well, that's that's good. I think we could all be a little bit more cultured. I'm not saying um, I'm going to be, but I yeah, wish no, I was. No, that's, the, the question isn't what's something you're going to do. It's right. just, uh, you know, wishes. Sure. Uh, What's something you get wrong almost every time you do it? Man, I should ask my wife, I think. Yeah. Uh, she, she'd probably have a stronger opinion. <laughs> something wrong every time I do it. Um, you know, it's just showing my vanity here. I'm not, I'm not wrong at anything, right? No. Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. <laughs> no, listen, I, I think uh, anytime you go to court, hopefully I'm not wrong by any means, but anytime I go into court, I get nervous. I'll say that. Um, you know, I think being a lawyer, you know, it's just a, it's a challenging profession. And I think we all need to, you know, should be constantly trying to improve and, and be a little, be a little stronger every time we go into court, every time we go into that judge, know a little more, have a little more confidence. Um, so I think that's something that, that I aspire to be. Speaking of going to court and, you know, rituals and things of that nature, do you have any superstitions? either around court or around going to work or around the holidays or anything like that? I am a superstitious guy. So I, you know, I played sports in high school, a little bit in college. And, and uh, you know, to me, what'd you play? Uh, I was a tennis. Well, I went to Jankatown. So Jankatown, you know, with 43 kids in my graduating class, you're able to play anything you want to play. So I, I, I varsityed in three sports, but that would not have been the case if I had gone to, let's say, Abington or Cheltenham. Tennis was my sport. Uh, so I love tennis and I was uh, very superstitious about wearing the same stuff, wearing the same hat during matches. Um, and, uh, you know, I definitely am a, a neat and tidy guy. So I, you know, pack my clothes the same way and, and when I, you know, fold them and stuff like that. Um, but some people would say that's OCD. Yeah, just, so it's well, I choose to a, say superstitious. superstitious versus OCD. Yeah, there's there's some gray lines there. There's a fine line for sure. And, so has this bled over? Uh, to your family at all? Do your boys now fold in what I'm assuming is a weird way, or I'm sure they picked things? up other other little uh, uh, mannerisms from me, but but their clothes are all over the place. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's something good. maybe we need to work on. That, make, that makes me feel a little bit better about my own house. Sure. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? You know, 
uh, my mom told me I was like I said I was a teacher in public schools before I, I went to law school and my mom said uh, get to know the secretaries and get to know the custodians and she was right and and it made all the difference in the world because what she means by I think what she meant by that what I took from it is that in life you know everyone is important and you know giving people the respect that they deserve whether whatever their station is in life uh, whatever you deem believe their station is in life or whatever society believes their station is in life um, is really really important and i think this past year has proven that that you know the people that were the most important over the last year were those people you know checking your groceries out um, the nurses which my wife is a nurse uh, the teachers all those people that have been deemed frontline workers uh, and I consider my staff in the prothonotary's office, they are frontline workers. We've been open every single, we closed for two days this time last year. And ever since then, we've been open. And I think it's it's just really important to remember the people that can't work from home like I can. Um, you know, they're doing all, all the, the, the truly important work. And so I think that's what the, the piece of advice that my mom was imparting about on me was to to respect everybody. Sounds like good advice, very similar to the advice as a law clerk that I gave to the incoming law clerk when he started, which was uh, make sure to schmooze all the clerks in the prothonotary's office and the clerk of court's office, because otherwise you can't get anything done. That's right. And that was the best advice I ever gave, or so I like to think. Josh, well, I, I, think, I, think that, I think that treating, you know, the way you treat people, the way you interact with people, I think it, you know, it makes a difference. I think people see it. Yeah, I agree. Well, hey, Noah, I appreciate you taking the time and especially taking uh, more time after the break here uh, to, to record and share some insight and share some stuff that's going on at your office. Uh, if anyone's looking for you, they can find you at the courthouse, I guess. They Google your name in Montgomery County Prothonotary. That's the best place to find you. No uh, social media you'd like to plug or anything like that? Uh, I, I definitely would like to plug a little social media. Okay. Uh, my office, uh, you can definitely find a, us on the county website. Um, you can certainly email me. Uh, my email is, is Googleable, uh, but we are also on Facebook, uh, uh, Noah Marlier Prothonotary, Prothonotary Noah Marlier, um, and uh, we are on Twitter um, as Prothonotary uh, Noah Marlier. If you search that, it will come up. Um, and we'll so, put our links in the show notes so people can get there easily. That would be fantastic. And, 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 I, and again, you know, that's important to me because we started that within the last year, and I think it's really important to reach out to people and and make sure they know about the resources of my office. And I noticed you didn't drop a TikTok. Is that forthcoming or? Uh, oh, I'm sure the TikTok's sure forthcoming. Insta is definitely coming. Uh, Instagram uh, will is on the horizon, so be on the lookout. Excellent. Well, hey, thanks very much. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.